0: Hey, listener, have you ever thought about starting a podcast? Whether you're an expert, a super fan, or just want to speak your mind, if you start a podcast about what you love, there's listeners out there who'll love it too. So let's hear it. With Acast, it couldn't be easier to get started. You can create, grow, and even make money from your podcast. You can get started completely free at acast.com. That's A C A S T.com. yesterday morning I went to our local Episcopal Church and the homily that the priest Jedediah Fox preached was really great and it felt so relevant to the work that I'm trying to do with this podcast that I thought I would share a couple things that he mentioned now I didn't realize this yesterday but I guess on the church calendar it was Pentecost Sunday and on Pentecost the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples and as if it were divided tongues of fire. That's the language used. And our gospel reading during the service was from John 14, during the Last Supper. Peter says to Jesus, just show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And Jesus responds like, dude, I'm right here. And the disciples, who I think in this story are a stand-in for us, are with Jesus in the flesh and still, They ask to see the Father. What they want is certainty. This is true of Moses as well. After the burning bush, after the plagues, after the exodus from Egypt, Moses asks God, can I just see your face? We want certainty, but God doesn't give us certainty. Instead, we get four accounts of Jesus's life that are sometimes hard to square with each other. We get a Bible with divergent voices trying to explain and describe God, we are forced to use discernment. Jesus does not answer them by showing them the Father. He responds by saying that they will get the advocate, the Holy Spirit. Now, the word for the Spirit in this passage actually has two meanings side by side, comfort and catalyst. Like fire, the Spirit can warm us, but also like fire, it changes us. And it is elusive. We can see the effects of the spirit, relationships healed, forgiveness extended, the hungry fed, but we can't hold on to the fire itself. But people of faith, people who have experienced God, have always known this. Those who wrote the story of Moses knew it, and the writer of the Gospel of John knew it. We want certainty, but God doesn't give us certainty. Maybe God gives us something better. Anyway, I thought that was awesome, and uh, I might as well tease here that I had a great conversation about certainty and uncertainty with Mark Schaefer, author of the book, The Certainty of Uncertainty, and that episode should come out in about a a month or so, so look forward to that. Now, to today's episode, you have permission to stay in your church or denomination. First, the potential elephant in the room, didn't I just leave my church? Yes, my wife and I left, but we stayed for 10 years until the cognitive dissonance had grown too strong, especially for me. I think Jaffrey could have stayed much longer. But my default position with regard to institutions in general, which include churches, political parties, whatever, stay unless you're truly being harmed or feel clear that it's time for you to go. That's my, my general approach. Um, and I did feel like it was time to go from our church. Anyway, I'm excited for this conversation, for you guys to hear it. Dr. Trisha Bruce, uh, she's a sociologist. She mostly studies American Catholics. And so in our conversation, she talks a lot about Catholics in particular. But that's just because she is a scientist and she wants to be precise. It isn't that her work doesn't also generalize to other Christians in America. For most of her work, it surely does. Um, And then also towards the end, we get into some good old-fashioned sociology of religion, talking about the increase of especially younger Americans who don't identify with any religion. And we tie that back in to the larger question of leaving versus staying within your religious institution. At the end of the interview, I'll be answering a patron question from Jamie. His question is, in your opinion, what are the requirements for someone to call themselves a Christian? I'll talk about various motivations for asking that question, some possible answers, and of course, I'll give my own answer because when do I pass up an opportunity to tell people what I think? Very rarely. Uh, Remember, you can ask these Q&A questions or vote on which ones I'll answer by becoming a patron and joining the patron-only Facebook group, patreon.com slash dancoke, or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. All right, here we go. Dr. Trisha Bruce, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I want to just sort of start by saying what I'd like to do here today. I think you and I would both agree that there are times when it is appropriate for someone to leave their faith community. It's not always easy to tell when those times are, but surely sometimes (laughs) some people should leave. But today I sort of want to make the argument for staying. And one thing that I think is going to make that conversation so interesting is that you come from a Catholic background and in the Catholic World, it's just a, it's just different. There's not so many choices. You could change parishes, and maybe you end up at a Jesuit or a Franciscan parish, which is a little more laid back. Or maybe you go to a place where they have contemporary music, or but like you're still in the 1.5 billion person Catholic Church <laughs> or whatever the number is, right. right? Whereas I'm getting a little weird at this evangelical church. I'll just go try this Episcopal one right mm-hmm. down the street, and it it's not seen in the same way. It's not. It doesn't actually cost me as much to do that perhaps is there anything you want to say just globally before we get into your story and sort of the arguments
1: the Catholic Church has a phenomenal way of absorbing all kinds of diversity and even dissent so I think for a lot of Catholics, particularly U.S. Catholics, for example, they think to themselves, uh, the church is against birth control. I use birth control. Um, The church is against same-sex marriage. Uh, I support same-sex marriage. And so for some, that becomes enough of a reason where they feel like, you know what, I can't in good conscience still be Catholic or I can't attend a Catholic church. But for many, and I would even say for a huge proportion of American Catholics, they stay. They, uh, you know, some call it defecting from within, right? So they, they know that they are holding these disagreements with church teachings or even sometimes with what the priest is saying uh, during the homily in Mass on a given Sunday. And yet they're able to separate and think through for themselves how to be either, some might call it a dissenting Catholic, others might call it simply a non-assenting Catholic. You know, I believe with these core principles, maybe in terms of, of the Eucharist or a preference for the poor, but I disagree on uh, other spaces. And so uh, you'd be in good company is what I'm saying is, is if you stay. <laughs>
0: right. That's interesting. I have two thoughts about that. First is the man who I spent the most time with and really considering Catholicism was a Jesuit, and he actively did not agree with women not being priests. He didn't think that the ban on birth control was legit. He had sort of some procedural reasons that didn't make that much sense to me because I wasn't raised Catholic. So he held that intention, and I'm meeting with him doing spiritual exercises every week. And then the second thing is you mentioned the homily. And that is a huge procedural difference. Homily versus sermon. <laughs> if I'm listening to my Presbyterian pastor spend 45 minutes on election to heaven or damnation yeah. to hell. Yeah, yeah. And I really disagree with that. I mean, that's half the service, more than half the service. <laughs> right. If the if the twelve minute homily on Sunday or the three minute homily on a weekday, sure. If I disagree, it's like well, it was fifteen yeah. percent, <laughs> you know. And and I yeah. also know that there is like all these people above my parish priest sure. that are technically in charge, right? And you just don't have that in right. the Protestant world,
1: right? No, it's true. It's it's a hierarchical system. You know, a lot of Catholics find their way through the church by choosing a parish where they feel at home, and so for some well they may feel like, you know, this is really not where I want to be. I don't like this priest. I don't like the homily. Then the next Sunday, they go somewhere else, somewhere else that is still Catholic. Catholic parishes on average have a lot more masses, have a lot more worship services than Protestant congregations. They tend to be a lot larger on average. And so what that means is that they're able to cater to various niche populations of Catholics in different service times. And the experience can be really quite different.
0: You you find that as well in some larger Protestant churches. But of course, many of them are not nearly large enough to sustain the multiple aesthetic styles. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and this is as much of a forced reality as it is a, a chosen one, given that there's a priest shortage. And so part of the supersizing of US parishes in particular has to do with the fact that there simply aren't enough priests who can serve that many parishes. And so they have to consolidate within one building. It becomes a shared space. So you can have as many as five or more masses that look pretty different.
0: Oh, interesting. My solution is let them get married like Orthodox and, and Episcopals, <laughs> yeah. but we're going to talk about okay. some of what, what happened. Well, we're not yeah. going to talk about that. Let me solve your church's <laughs> problems as an outsider. Trisha. It, it, it.
1: <laughs> I'm sure. That'd be welcome.
0: No, but so how, I want a little bit about your own story, just so we know where you're coming from. How do you, how does one become a sociologist of religion and what exactly is a sociologist of religion. What does that mean?
1: As a a budding sociologist, even well before I even knew that term, I'm someone who's just always been fascinated by people and what makes people tick and then how people work together and in in groups. And this is what serves the the core of the discipline of sociology is trying to understand society and people and social institutions and this interplay of agency and structure. You know, how did I get into this? And then how did I get into sociology of religion in particular? One of the things we may ask as we look around at this world of people is what is it that informs how they think and the way they operate in the world and I knew that for my part Religion was a big part of my story. You know, I, I grew up in the Catholic Church, you know, a key part of my identity. I knew it had shaped the way I thought about certain things. I knew that I saw certain models and didn't see other models of how the world was. And it was some of that autobiographical motivation for me that led me then going into graduate school to start thinking through, well, what does this look like when you actually add empirical evidence to this, right? Sociologists, It's it. you know, we're scientists. It is a science. It's a social science. So there's in some ways a mix of objectivity and subjectivity, but it is empirically based. So we try to understand through good data what the patterns of the world are. So sociologists of religion are attuned to how is it that religion shapes and impacts people's lives and behaviors and then society as a whole. So how does it have an impact on laws or violence in the world or, you know, insert whatever question you have. And so for me, this became just a really, I would say at its core, fascinating way to look at the world, but just a way also for me to kind of think through what mattered to me and then what I saw being a big piece of what matters to the way society works.
0: and as you sort of got a better picture of that, you ended up choosing to focus on institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, that surely can't be the only option for a <laughs> sociologist of religion. Yeah. So what brought you to religious institutions as a focus of your work?
1: Yeah. Sociologists try to think about, well, what is this mix of agency and structure. So agency, we can think of like a sports uh, free agent, you know, someone who has full choice of whatever they want to do. Um, but we always recognize that our agency, our, our ability to make these choices is constrained by structures and by broader forces um, around us, whether it's race or class or gender, or these big organizations and institutions that we often are a part of, whether it's education or healthcare or religion or otherwise. Looking at institutions and looking at organizations organizations is a way to understand how power works. And I think sometimes there's too strong of a tendency or even a hope to look at grassroots efforts as being the be all and end all in terms of um, social change. But the fact is that that Power is real, right? And sometimes the best of our hopes or intentions or grassroots efforts are going to butt up against pretty hardcore structures and institutions. Uh, And I think the Catholic Church is a great example of that. And so for me, my work has explored from a variety of angles what that looks like, how it plays out, and and what it means.
0: Something we'll probably get to as we talk through some of these examples is if you can move the needle of an institution— It's sort of like when you see those ads, like Google is multiplying donations (laughs) by two times today or, you know, or whatever, matching contributions. Yeah. If you move the needle of something with real world power, you've multiplied your effect, Mm -hmm. right? I mean... Bec- just in terms of practical consequences.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, classic sociologist Emile Durkheim said that the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, and so an institution is not just me plus you plus whoever else is there. It actually becomes something bigger by nature of it being an institution. Uh, and so, yeah, when you talk about the scale of it or the collective power of it, for better or worse, that matters, right? So we have to pay attention then to yeah, you know, what does change look like within an institution institutions? How do institutions maybe even squash change? Uh, and, and yeah, a whole sure. host of related questions.
0: Okay, so mostly what we're doing today is we're going to make the argument, make the case for staying in one's church or institution denomination, or you want to set that up as. But, you know, let's talk a little bit about what the case is for leaving or mm-hmm. when the case might seem strong sure. for leaving. But we have to note immediately that you and I automatically are thinking about that differently coming from Catholic and Protestant backgrounds. Yeah. So can you talk about that first?
1: Yeah. You know, just if you look at the history of, say, schisms in... The church, or in various religious bodies, oh, we all know about the Protestant Reformation. You know, so we know the Ninety Five Theses. Um, but from there, you know, the story of Catholicism is is it looks pretty different than the story of Protestantism in the sense that schisms and denominational splits from long ago or from this year happen in Protestant traditions largely as a way to discern or navigate theological differences or disagreements about who can be ordained or whatnot. Catholicism in some ways looks very different, in other ways not. It looks very different in the sense that it just doesn't have that same sort of splitting. The majority of what happens is that there are these kinds of disagreements, but they're almost absorbed within this larger umbrella of the church. And so the church, which is quite large, Catholicism in the United States is is the largest denomination on its own right. And within that, there's this constant grappling of, you know, what should be what is, but it has has retained that tension, and that diversity all within a unified body. Of course, some people leave the church, right? So this this is certainly an option, but it looks a little different. I would say the bridge or the jump to either enter the Catholic Church or leave the Catholic Church. It's a big bridge, you know, it's a big river.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what you are getting at earlier of like if you change Protestant denominations or even, you know, just worshiping bodies, like in a lot of cases, you're not leaving so much behind. There's mm-hmm. quite a bit of continuity there. It strikes me, there is like one counterexample though, which is what a lot of the listeners of this show have done, which is leave evangelicalism mm-hmm. or leave fundamentalist you know, Baptist churches or or something, or to be in those families and have a faith change, that might be closer to what it would be like for a Catholic to leave, right?
1: Yeah. Well, a lot of Catholics who have left so we'll say ex Catholics many of them actually describe themselves as still having a cultural connection to Catholicism interesting so it's almost like an ethnic identity it's like Hotel California you know once you check in you never really check out uh, there is this <laughs> this lingering identity and and for some of course that's really uncomfortable they actually want to leave they they really dislike things about Catholicism or their socialization in the church or they have some real disagreements with it but for others it's an affinity you know they maybe they went to a catholic school They grew up Catholic, and now they just don't go to Mass anymore, but they still feel Catholic. Um, So so there's a a variety of ways that people kind of think through what that looks like for them.
0: One thing I was thinking when you were describing the way the denominations splinter in Protestantism, talking about who can be ordained, I thought immediately of a lot of the Black denominations, Mm -hmm. which I formerly thought, just naively without ever looking into it, that, well, they just started their own denominations, like everyone starts their own denominations. Turns out not <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. They started because yeah. African American men were not allowed to become right. pastors. Right. And so to ask the question, should you stay or should you go, if you're an African American Christian yeah. and you might be leaving to join a denomination that has always admitted that you could be a pastor, sure. There are just there are yeah. more factors at play in different pockets of Protestantism.
1: Yeah. The African American example is interesting too. I mean, looking at black Catholics in particular, they're, you know, they're roughly 3% of US Catholics are black Catholics. It's a pretty small proportion in the church. And so at some level, we could say, oh, well, just, you know, African Americans aren't Catholic. Well, there's a deep and painful history behind that, and it does have to do with a lack of acceptance or parishes that that were racially divided and intentionally so. You know, there there is no room for you. There's um, there's a lot of research too on women and men who wanted to enter the priesthood or religious life, black women and men who were told, no, we, we will not accept you. Yeah, the question of do you stay or do you leave? You know, for some whether it's uh, black Catholics or others who are thinking through how do I reconcile, or even for for women, you know, we could ask this question there too, how do I reconcile this treatment that could be read as being seen as less than equal? And it is, I mean, I I don't think it's something that um, should be set aside. I actually think that it's something that should be taken on 100%. But from the stay argument, if it were, you know, I think that there's a collective way to say, hey, you know what, that is wrong, and I am not going anywhere, (laughs) you know, you you're going to have to face this this wrong.
0: Yeah, that's maybe uh, kind of a top level way we might describe the argument for leaving is to say. Look, the nimbleness of Protestantism did allow for them to go, all right, we're starting our own thing. Yeah. And and that yeah. wasn't available in Catholicism. And so yeah. it's interesting that you have a proportionate to the number of African-Americans in the United States population, a much, yeah. smaller, much smaller proportion. And yeah. and so there is a sense in which, yeah, maybe leaving provides sort of necessary impetus sometimes mm-hmm. for, for change. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. we might call that the... Uh, meta argument for leaving <laughs> uh, which yeah. is a little different yeah. than the personal reasons people might have and i sure. i don't if you i wonder if you want to add anything to just sort of like may, maybe not with your sociologist hat but your sure. your friend hat your yeah. whatever do you have any kind of rules of thumb for people who are who are thinking through that i'm sure you must end up talking to people about it because of the work you're doing yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I think for me personally, there's probably probably a reason why I am so attracted to the sociologist lens, just in the sense that some of those questions are just, frankly, really, really hard. Yeah, you they know? Yeah. They're really, really hard. And I think that for people who are personally thinking through, what does this mean? Or, you know, if you ask Catholics, why did you leave? Or ex-Catholics, right? Why did you leave the church? You know, for some of them, it's after a a really painful moment that they they felt like the church wasn't there for them. You know, maybe they experienced a divorce or the death of a family member. Maybe they experienced abuse or the disagreement or the feeling like this is not a place where I feel like I am connected to to God. And when there is that chasm, that separation, I think that that can create an enormous amount of struggle and pain for people. And some people leave the church and then come. back. I mean reversion is the thing too. Um, Totally, you know, for and for young adults, I think a lot of times that's that time period in your life where you're trying to reconcile, you know, what is it that I'm looking for? What am I okay with? What am I not okay with? And for many Catholics, you know, they may leave the church for ten years and then and then get married and have kids and say, you know what, and now I want a community and I still have some disagreements, but I'm coming back home, as it were.
0: Okay, here's a question where you can just wear your sociologist hat, won't (laughs) do that awkward, move into the personal. So setting aside the idea that someone might leave their church and join a different church, so that some sort of conversion or switch, what does someone lose on average or statistically speaking?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. What are they likely to lose when they lose their membership in a religious institution altogether? So they go Mm -hmm. from being a part of one to being a part of zero of them. What do the data say about that?
1: I mean the t- the flip side of it is what value add or what positive things does religion bring to someone's life sure and you know certainly there there are psychological things that I know you've you've explored on your show as well you know I, I think through this as a sociologist and so one of the things that that religion does and one of the things that a congregation does sort of a, a local manifestation of religion um, is that it provides a, a sense of community right in its best form and this is one of the few brick and mortar places where we gather with others oftentimes with others who are different than us um, on a variety of fronts, you know, maybe different in terms of age, where they're from, uh, the experiences that they've had in their life, uh, come together around some, you know, a common shared goal or good, sing together, whether the music is good or bad, um, and, and uh, build that community, have a potluck, you know. And I, I think community alone is a really great example of something that for people who leave, there's the question of, okay, what does community look like when you don't practice a religion? Uh, And this is a question that I think we're Having in some ways as a, as a society in the U.S. as we have an increasing number of nuns in o n e folks who don't affiliate with a, a particular religious denomination. Um, so if you're not going somewhere on Sunday morning or Saturday night, what what is it? Is it CrossFit? Is it your yoga class? Is it your workplace? Is it the people you see at the grocery store? You know where do we get that? Or is it online? You know there, there are arguments to be made, but I I would say and I do believe and you can find data linked to this, too, that there is something about the congregational experience, especially in moments of struggle, struggle and joy, right? So you, you have a kid, um, and they, they create a meal train, or you get married, or your mom dies, you know, it, you look around, you're not going to run to the grocery store and try to find those people that shop on, you know, Saturday afternoon. Totally <laughs> um, right.
0: Yeah.
1: And then you can look at other things, too. I mean, um, happiness, health, I mean, all these are attributes that have been linked back to religious participation, even apart from belief. So, you know, in some ways, it's like, you know, whether or not you believe, if you show up and attend, if you go, then there are going to be potentially some positive wellness impacts of of that. Now, there could be negative ones too, right? We could talk sure. about that. Yeah. Those are some things come to mind.
0: Yeah, a, a couple thoughts came just listening to you. One is just this idea that we have an increasingly low number of physical third places yes, in our exactly. culture where right. our community happens online. It happens in our text messages with our friends right. and and then at work. Yes. And that's pretty much it. Work and home and then online. Uh, and you could argue that online has become a third place. It, it certainly is for some things, you know, maybe a message boards might sure. be in in a way where there's a. A topic, but Facebook doesn't seem to be a very good substitute. It's different for a bowling league yeah. or a trivia night or a something like that. You know. Yeah. yeah. And then the other thing that you were talking about: what kind of people are mm. we around? Mm-hmm. Different kinds of people in in church often. Yeah. And I think about um, a recent episode with with Richard Beck, the psychologist, and this is maybe where the psychology and the sociology overlap. He he was critiquing people who say, you know, a couple friends and a bottle of wine—that's my church. Yeah. And he said, um, no. I mean, you might talk about God, but if everyone around that table either looks like you <laughs> yeah, right, or right. if they don't look like you, they are of the same socioeconomic status right. and have the same interests as you, then that's actually not church. Yeah. That is a friend group yeah. or a social club yeah. at church. Yeah. He, and he says specifically in Christianity, he says the the kind of call that Jesus gives will end up making that table look diverse (laughs) pretty different you know and he's like you know what do i have in common with a really poor person yeah not a lot to talk about but if we're coming to take the eucharist together yeah then uh, now and this is one of my favorite things about catholic mass Mm -hmm. especially at the downtown cathedrals in the middle of cities Mm -hmm. you just have everybody i mean age income culture and there's something i just love like being handed being handed the elements by like Seventy-year-old Vietnamese woman, yeah, right? Who right. I would never, ever yeah. talk. I, mean, I just wouldn't have a reason yeah. to hang out with her. Yeah, you know, and yeah. and so. No, I have you have anything to yeah,
1: add. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point because especially today we hear a lot about polarization and tribalism and how we filter not just our news feeds but we filter our realities, you know, we filter who we hang out with, what we hear from, what we don't hear from. And and yeah, sometimes that makes us feel really good and sometimes that makes us feel like, ah, my people, you know, and there's value to that too. But but yeah, to your point, I mean, it's a really good one. How how often are we in places where we are encountering someone who's Who's truly different and the other. And even just, you know, we think about how do you make how do you make friends, right? You know, I I hear sometimes people in their sort of thirties, forties and beyond, like wh- how do you make friends you know, past college um, yeah. from a sociological perspective? You know, even just the definition of group, a group is like, it requires regular patterned interaction. That's why college is such a great place to make friends because you have regular patterned interaction with people because you see them in class or you see them across campus. You're just, you're around each other. A lot of people who are in college then fall in love and they get married or they have lifelong friends. Where do we do that now? And then back to these sort of happens. examples okay maybe we take a run or we shop but it's not the same regular group of people and so you're not having that repeated interaction in the way that a congregation is just set up to do With, with all its imperfections you know and we can certainly talk about ways that that congregations are divided too especially along racial lines but setting that aside there there's not yeah the third place there's not a whole lot like that out there.
0: For the racial thing, I'll just refer listeners to the previous episode with Michael Emerson, evangelicalism's racial blind spot, which is not only apply to evangelicalism. We just got done talking about leaving church. And I do want to tease, by the way, we are going to talk about the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. The, we're going to talk about that later in case people, if that caught their ear. But is there data about, can it be quantified what people lose when they switch? So let's say rather than going from... One to zero, you're going from one to a different one. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe the length of time of the relationships is has now been truncated or, you know, it takes longer to get to know the older people in the congregation or whatever. I mean... It, I imagine this would be a little harder to quantify sociologically.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I'd have to think about that one a little bit more. I mean, again, the the parallel is kind of interesting on the Catholic side, because one of the things that Catholics talk about, something that that keeps them in the church, is the fact that when they, say, move to a new city, the Catholic parish for all its differences looks really, really similar in terms of the practice of the liturgy and the patterns. And so it can feel very familiar wherever you are on the planet, even if you do switch and move. But I think, you know, to your question more specifically, what happens when you move? I think, you know, if you talk about the nature of relationships that take time to foster and build, I guess you could draw a parallel of, of switching schools, you know, some things, some credits will transfer and some will not, uh, and oh, you might feel analogy. like you're behind. Um, and and that's not for everyone. I think, you know, there have been some interesting sociological studies on on people who are more inclined to seeking, if you want to call it that, versus not. Um, and some people are just, they're you know, they, they do that, and they like to hop around and kind of see what feels right. And for others, that's just wholly disorienting.
0: So a lot of your work, most of your work ends up centering around the Catholic Church. And we're going to use that as kind of like a a way of getting at some of these larger institutional questions. But to start this next segment, which will be more about institutions and the Catholic Church in general as a case study, I have said on the podcast before that I think that people tend to change their mind in one of two ways. They either change it fairly quickly, because of some suffering, or maybe some great piece of joy. Or they change it gradually over time. Certain people that they respect change their opinions and then that becomes more plausible. And eventually, you know, over five, ten years, they have a new view. But do institutions ever change rapidly or do institutions (laughs) Uh, only change gradually over time?
1: Right. Both. (laughs) Okay. Both. Yeah, let's use the example of Catholicism. You know, the the Catholic Church, the global Catholic Church, I think one could easily make the argument that, oh my gosh, change is slow slash impossible because it takes eons and generations and seemingly a million years to even move the needle just the tiniest bit. But sometimes change happens really fast. The biggest example of this in the Catholic Church is, is when Vatican II or the Second Vatican Council happened in the early 1960s, so 1962 to 1965. And it was something that brought together all of the bishops from around the world, produced a number of um, conciliar documents, which introduced a number of really big changes. So for example, before everyone's mass was always in Latin. <laughs> right. yep. and, and then after Vatican II, suddenly mass was in English or in Vietnamese or the, la- the local language. Um, huge difference. Yeah, huge difference. Suddenly the music was Different. Suddenly, even the architecture of the churches uh, started to be made sort of in the round was a, a popular. Um, Some big um, <laughs> theological changes
0: too, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the status of other religions. Exactly. Who's in hell? Humanism, if anybody, that's right. You um, can be friends
1: yeah. with who you can marry, right. and this happened really, really fast. And it was I, I was not yet born um, during this time, and so for me, I, you know, it's interesting the cohort effect of kind of if you were alive or not, how and how you view the church accordingly. But having uh, had so many conversations with folks who were alive during the changes of Vatican II and and having read a bunch about it too. There is, I mean, it it took a long time to figure out what does this even mean? What does this look like? And it did feel really, really rapid.
0: But at the same time, I mean, it it was happening slowly and then it happened fast and then it's still happening slowly. I remember (laughs) when I was talking with Father Paul, the Jesuit who I mentioned earlier, I was like, I think if I were to become a Catholic, I would be a Vatican III Catholic. (laughs) That was like my joke. And he was like, Vatican III, he's like, I'm still waiting for Vatican yeah. II to happen. Yeah. And he was a priest when, when it was passed in the yes. 60s. I and mean, he's he's 86 years old now. Yeah, And he would draw a distinction between what he called Council of Trent Catholics mm-hmm. and Vatican II Catholics. So yeah. the old guard who didn't yeah. really like those changes. Sure. But so even if it's true that like a decision came down, you know, it's true that the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act passed in 64 and 65. Mm-hmm. But, you know, of course, the hearts and minds change Of the government, of the voting body of the United States, of the bishops, that stuff is changing slowly, even up to the point that that could even happen. Yeah. That those changes could come swiftly. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I guess I'm just emphasizing that, like, you know, you might want an institution to change just like your aunt changed when her kid was gay, and then <laughs> right. in a, in a right. year, right. she realized she was gay affirming. Yeah. It's not going to happen probably. Yeah. Like, it, There's too many people involved, too many moving parts. Yeah. maybe I'm just trying to it's maybe true. motivate patients, I guess. Yeah.
1: No, it's true. I mean, we can think of it as cultural lag. You know, to, to draw a non-religious example, I mean, even something like text messaging. It's like, this is not that old you know the whole the the novelty of this way for us to interact with each other through language on our phones but then it takes our culture longer to catch up to figure out what are the social norms what are the norms of engagement around text messaging when do i have
0: to text back how soon like how
1: um can we break up by text can i is this a work thing or just a personal thing and that there are generational differences for that too and it matters whether the text message came about when you were older or it you know, you've known it since you were born. Um, and I think you with know, changes in, in Catholicism or in religion in general, I think sometimes it looks like that too. Sometimes, even if there's an actual change in, let's say, the law or the book of regulation, which does matter, you know, this is sub- significant when it's codified, then that kind of sets the parameters. But that doesn't mean that the culture changes. You know, you can say that something is now legal or illegal, but that doesn't mean that people walk lockstep with that. And so So what you're describing, I think, is absolutely what change oftentimes looks like, which is hard. And you do have to be very patient. And sometimes I think, too, oh, my gosh, you know, there are things, there are changes that I would like to see. And I don't know that I'll ever see them. That doesn't mean I want them any less or I'll work for them any less. But I don't know that I'll ever see them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Father Paul's retirement homily at 85 or whatever was like, I think the church is ready for female priests, and uh, you right, know, we're right. a couple of things. The I was like, "Well, you're not going to probably live to see <laughs> yeah, that, Paul. Yeah. No offense, right, right. Um, but he spent 50 years sure. as a priest working, you know, or at least doing his priestly job, but holding that view. Yeah, uh, and he never left. Yeah, and he never." Right. <laughs> went back on his celibacy commitment, even right. though he fell in love once or yeah, twice. And, yeah, yeah. you know, so like I, I have this uh, example of him of like, yeah. well, he really stayed in the system. Now he was a Jesuit, which means he had. <laughs> a lot of Sometimes I get really interesting emails from listeners of this show. And I got one a while back from a guy named Kaylee Hargrove and it included his story about applying for conscientious objector status in the Air Force. And this was especially interesting because a big part of his change of heart on military force and violence coincided with a season of faith deconstruction and reconstruction. I invited him to have a conversation with me about all of that, and the result is our first patron-only bonus episode for the month of June. All patrons have access to these episodes. You even get a nice little RSS feed, emailed out to you when you sign up, such that you can just copy and paste that into your favorite podcast app, and these bonus episodes show up automatically just the same as regular episodes. Here uh, is a couple minutes, some short clips from my chat with Kaylee.
2: I remember having this thought that America was like the new promised land. I mean, there's, there is no questioning whether or not you know, it, it would be right for a Christian to take part in the military. It is very easy for us to create an us versus them mentality. Yeah. Because because there's those of us who have accepted Jesus and we no longer have the wrath of God on us, but everyone else, God is angry at them. What were the first century Jews looking for in a Messiah? And what they were looking for was this person that was gonna be set up by God who's gonna come in and free. Israel from the oppression of the Roman government. I mean, in a Jewish mindset, the Messiah isn't going to welcome in the Samaritans. They're from that northern kingdom that turned away, and they, they're they not supposed to be welcome back.
0: Right. It's like we might say, hey, Muslims could worship the real God, but they're worshiping the false God. They have a chance. Mm-hmm. They've chosen this. They've made their bed. And Jesus would come into that exact line of thinking and go, Um, Let me tell you the parable of the Good Samaritan.
2: (laughs) Exactly. The good Syrian
0: refugee, you know, or something like that.
2: A lot of what you believed was not necessarily stuff that was overtly told to you, but just kind of built into the culture around you. And there's like this sense that if I was affected so much just by my culture and like I still have plenty of that culture built into me, then... Obviously a person that is raised in a completely different culture they're going to be they're going to have their own you know set of beliefs that are so culturally ingrained that it's not necessarily something that they can just break free of. Right. So it is literally God talking to God and he says forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And to me that is just the most powerful statement I think in the in the entire Bible because it is the ultimate sign of God's love for mankind that he would allow himself to be brutalized by his own creation. The point is is I don't feel as if even even if the country I lived in was being invaded, that I could take part uh, in fighting off the invaders.
0: If that sounded interesting to you or if you just want to be a part of the Facebook community, which means you get to help me write questions for guests, and ask and vote on the listener questions that I generally answer at the end of episodes, then become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Koch, or you have permission pod.com. Click become a patron. It's just five bucks a month. You can give more if you want. But there are also some scholarships available. For those of you who truly cannot afford it in this season of your life, just email me and we will work it out. Money should not be a factor in keeping anybody from this community. You have permission, podcast at gmail.com. Okay, back to the episode. Let's get into your first book. Sure. 2011. It was about a grassroots organization that was mobilizing to fight sex abuse by clergy mm-hmm. within the Catholic Church. Now, they stayed Catholic, right? So they yes. stayed in. So they were grassroots, but they were yeah. from within. Right and so what do you think the unique challenges associated from working within the system were for for them and, and for in general. Yeah. For other Yeah, absolutely. Like
1: that. Yeah. So when you think about social movements, you know, for a long time sociologists thought about and wrote about social movements, especially those who were targeting the state. Uh, in some ways the, the the whole definition of a social movement was linked to the state. So it wasn't a social movement unless you're trying to enact legal change. This is a group that was working from within the confines of an institution. We could draw other parallels. Uh, for example, a group of parents who are trying to make curricular changes in Side, an education system, you know, a group of nurses who are lobbying for change within their, their hospital system. But it, it means something to them be acting from within a space where you share an identity. In this case, and the group is called Voice of the Faithful. And these were Catholics through and through, you know, these were folks who had, most of them were baptized in the church when they were infants, uh, you know, had sung in the church choirs, had gone to, to Catholic schools, um, were Eucharistic ministers, lectors, and the like. And yet, when they saw the news of abuse um, that, that was highlighted, especially in 2002 with the Boston Globe's coverage, um, which in more recent coverage uh, has was depicted in the award-winning movie Spotlight and in my my book, which was out before <laughs> Spotlight. But, you know, these were, were Catholics who just saw that and were reeling from it and felt like, oh, my gosh, this is my church. And their reaction wasn't, I'm out. The reaction was, oh, I'm digging in <laughs> and I am going to push for change from within. And, you know, the, the Vatican II piece, since we mentioned that already, is is relevant here because a lot of them were baby boomer Catholics, a lot of them were Catholics who had, with their own eyes and lives, experienced the change of Vatican II. And so they knew the church could change. And so they felt like, here's a moment where it needs to change. There's something really serious, really horrific happening right here in our midst, and so we need to to mobilize. But it, it became really difficult for them to do that, because as soon as they were trying to push for change as Catholics within the Catholic church, then suddenly people ask like, oh, well, you're not really Catholic or this isn't, you know, you're, you're asking too many questions. Uh, we don't want you to be doing this. This is uncomfortable. Uh, and so it made it difficult for them to to make a difference.
0: What would you say the benefits were though in that work for staying within the system as opposed to going rogue and saying, we are a group of ex-Catholics right. who demand Congress to, you know, whatever, sure. they could have gone some other way. Yeah. Working yeah. outside the system,
1: yeah, and there certainly are examples of groups who did that too. Um, for Voice of the Faithful, I would say that the biggest advantage was the shared culture. So if you're if you have a you can call it a, a cultural toolkit. So what are the tools? As Michael yeah.
0: Emerson did <laughs> yeah, they, Yes, I the a, a, a a good, lot good sociologist yeah. <laughs> uh, language here.
1: Yes, yes, And and Swidler's cultural toolkit um, articles is probably one of, if not the most cited article in sociology. Yeah. So y- if you have a shared toolkit, then that means means that, that it's familiar, right? And you can talk the language, you know how to kind of work within the system. And I mean, it really is like a language. You think about if you're trying to communicate something, how difficult it is to do that if you don't share the language. You know, if, if your listeners have traveled abroad and in uh, countries where folks are speaking a different language, you know, just trying to order a meal becomes difficult. Whereas if you share that, then you can better articulate and work within an existing power structure to uh, to advocate for certain things. So I would say that was the biggest advantage. And then also there is this this um sense of legitimacy potentially that comes with saying, "Hey, I'm a Catholic." saying that you need to change because, you know, if you say, well, I'm so-and-so saying you need to change or I'm a lawyer saying you need to change. It's like, well, who are you to say that I should change? Um, You're outside of my club. (laughs) Um, Whereas if it's a family member, you know, if it's someone inside the club, those sentiments might be taken more
0: seriously. Yeah. Jonathan Haidt talks about like, if you want to get gun control passed, like you want Clint Eastwood as your (laughs) spokesperson or like a, a retired general.
1: Yeah. You know, in the
0: army, you want someone who has cachet in the community of people that you actually need to convince to change their vote. Absolutely. It did also make me think, you know, um, my wife and I, we we left our church of 10 years recently and we we mostly left over sort of sexuality questions and then my ability to to basically teach or or lead. Yeah. Yeah. But one thing that we missed out on by leaving is our church had recently hired an African-American pastor Mm -hmm. uh, who teaches part of the time. He's a fantastic preacher. Awesome. Also, for 10 years or more, our head pastor had been kind of a part of a caucus within that Presbyterian denomination, the PCA, which is not great about race. Uh They'd been kind of – he's in a caucus of pastors, I think mostly from the coasts, going, hey, we really need to address – Yeah. Sort of racial injustice. We need to make statements about this. We need to work on some of this segregation that we had in our denomination. Right. And by my wife and I leaving, we took our Mm. we took our help and our our voice away from that caucus within that institution. Yeah. And, you know, you have to make those decisions. But we were aware that we were doing that. And that was one of the costs of leaving. Yeah. One more question about the voice of the faithful. What did they end up? Well, two more. What did they end up accomplishing Mm -hmm. from within the system?
1: You know, anytime you look at a social movement, it, oftentimes that's the question, right? Well, what did, what did it change? Um, what are yeah. the outcomes? And some things are, are easier to measure than others. Back to the difference between targeting an institution versus targeting the law. If you're targeting the law or the state, then you can say, hey, we changed the law. You know, right. like, look, now same-sex marriage is legal. You know, that's a win. Um, right. it's, it's a lot harder when you're moving within an institution or you're trying to shape and shift culture because it's just not as measurable. You know, the the subtitle of my book, my first book, is "How Voice of the Faithful is Changing the Church," and I've got to say, it's you know, it's kind of tough. Here we are in 2019, you know. Well, that was my so I mean, that's why I said
0: two more questions. Yeah, and, la- and that right. last question had to be an update because that was right. 2011, and yes. obviously, it's back in the news it's, in a big way. It
1: is. It is, yeah. and it should be. And so. You know, a part of me feels like, oh, my gosh, you know, I, this was a completely unintentional, but just really, I don't know, irony or dark humor or something um, or a complete lie in my subtitle, because did it change anything? But, you know, I do think back to this idea of, of change being slow. And one thing that Voice of the Faithful has done consistently, and they do still exist, um, is articulate a voice for Catholics who say, we are Catholic, and this is not okay. And there is a way to be Catholic and to demand that the church be held accountable, that church leaders be held accountable, and to push on questions that say there there needs to be a a whole structural shift within the global church that better accounts for this. And I know that that work is not finished. I would say that now my observations of the more recent reaction to more recent revelations of abuse has been that, you know, before in the 2002 iteration of this, including Voice of the Faithful, and even among the bishops, the response was internally focused, you know, we'll create the Dallas Charter, which created these rules and regulations for American diocese, we'll make sure that we're kind of taking care of this, you know, and then, you know, Catholics together, okay, we're going to push for change for our church. But, you know, the more recent reactions, I think, have pushed this, this notion of external accountability to say that, hey, maybe that's not enough to say from inside of the church, we're going to handle this. Maybe you do also need the grand jury, you know, maybe you do also need these other groups to, to go through those blind spots. Because even though a lot of this abuse happened decades ago, some of it is is more recent, and then some of the, the institutional cover up um, has persisted. And so I think, you know, voice of people ra- raise some questions that are still getting answered. And I'm hopeful now that this more recent time has pushed for additional external accountability to be paired with the internal internal accountability.
0: You have this great phrase, mobile people encounter immobile infrastructure. That obviously applies to Catholics. It applies Mm -hmm. to Voice of the Faithful, as we've been talking about. But it sure seems like it also applies to a lot of Protestants as well, especially in some of the more doctrinally airtight Mm -hmm. denominations like the PCA, which I was mentioning. Sure. What kind of tensions happen when mobile people encounter immobile infrastructure in general?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, we can we can think of it either metaphorically or not, and starting on the, the not side, the latter side. You know, one really great example of this is the way that the Catholic Church in the United States was, was built. You wouldn't even build the church first, you would build the school first and then worship in the school and then build the church. And then sometimes the church would serve as literally the, the loan officer so that then the parishioners could build homes. So you build entire communities around these churches. Now, fast forward, 100 years and suddenly due to a lot of things, let's say for example white flight, to kind of bring the issue of of race back to the fore, and suddenly you have Catholics who are moving to the suburbs or you have economic changes where um, you know before they were in immigrant enclaves and now they have the means to be able to get a bigger home somewhere else. In the meantime, you've built up this, in this case, literal infrastructure in the urban cores of cities or in a high density concentration in some New England uh, cities. And then suddenly these Catholics... Either they're not there, or there aren't as many there, um, or you know you have Catholics uh, now. The real growth in the Catholic Church in the United States is in the the West and the South, and so you know what what happens then. Um, so this is a, a physical, literal interpretation of this, but you know part of what the Catholic Church is having to contend with now is how do we actually even deal with the physical property piece because you have all of this all of these churches. And now Catholics are dis- dispersed differently. You know, people have moved. The the and there are lots of reasons behind that. The the world has moved, um, and yet the the churches stay. So you have to kind of think through: well, do we keep these? What does this look like? And then, yeah, to use a more more figurative- well, before before you do yeah, that,
0: there it strikes me that there is a Protestant corollary there as yeah. well, especially with larger churches. Yes, and not just size of building and size of congregation, but connection to parachurch organizations sure. you know running homelessness ministries running other kinds of ministries yeah. and if you have a church of 6000 members and now 3000 are maybe gay affirming yeah. and what do you do and if you lose the donors you know so maybe not for the more the smaller yeah. more nimble groups but you do have some of that as well not yeah. uh, they might not have quite the same Two hundred yeah. year long infrastructure yeah. being built up, but you're still right. running into that kind of yeah. thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. How do you encounter? And if you look at even just changes in a neighborhood, you know, demographic shifts over time. Right. The neighborhood that used to look very Irish is now very Korean. Um. You totally. know, how do you respond to these to these needs? Which is there's a real uh, power of the longevity of religious institutions, which is why I think too that that you know we have to be cautious in making some sort of blanket secularization argument because the fact is that you know religious Religion and religious bodies religious you know churches in particular have a, a massive footprint in this country already and that's that's there and and yeah you could you could tear them down some of that is happening but there's you know there's literally it's built into our fabric and into our culture and so that becomes an opportunity to reinterpret for the future now that you have this kind of change what do you do with that what does it look like
0: so you were you were saying there's sort of a, a non metaphorical way to yeah. talk about <laughs> the uh, mobile people and the immobile infrastructure literally yeah it's it's in stone or right, wood right. concrete but there's also a metaphorical way to talk about yeah. that and so uh, please.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, on the Catholic side, for example, you know, American Catholics, given that we live in one of the, the wealthiest country in the world, you know, and, and we have laws that are inclined towards freedom and rights and whatnot. And we have a, a church that is highly traditional and, you know, doesn't always look very, quote unquote, American, especially if you travel outside of this country, you know, Catholicism looks pretty different in other places. If you want to think of that as, as mobility, right, people, Openness to to change and, and progress, which might run counter to the the kind of uh, tradition that religion upholds. How do we do this? How do we balance an openness to modern change, even the things as little as like an online presence for our parish, versus retaining the the core connections to this religion that is thousands of years old?
0: Like, let's say there's a pastor or church staff person listening, and they're like, oh, man, that phrase, mobile people coming up against immobile infrastructure, (laughs) that really hit home. Do you have any advice for sort of how they might approach whatever the particular problem is, if they recognize that that is what's going on?
1: Uh, Well... That's a great question. I mean, the the first thing that I would say, and this is, you know, I'm a sociologist, right? This is what you're going to get. But we have to we have to have good data, right? So we have to know what's around us. And I think sometimes religious leaders and religious participants can turn a blind eye because they they remember, well, this is how it's always been for me. You know, these are the people who would come to the church. These are the the faces I'm familiar with. These are the folks that I am used to seeing. And they don't realize that. Wait, you know this massive demographic change has been happening in our neighborhood. Or hey, this company just closed, and now we have all of these people totally. in our communities that don't totally. that don't have a job anymore. And sociology is actually a really this is my pitch, right? But sociology is a great tool for that because you can do a neighborhood analysis, right? You can kind of see yeah. what are the you look at census data, do surveys of your community, ask some questions, go out and do some focus groups or some interviews, and figure out, you know, hey, or you might look around and say. Gosh, we're looking—we're looking pretty gray here, folks. Where are all the young people? And—and and you may realize that our congregation is much older on average than our neighborhood. Why is that? What's going on? And so, I think the first step, in my mind, is always you—you ha- you have to have good knowledge in order to make good decisions. You can't just do it based on anecdote or guesses. You actually have to have the data.
0: Well, that's actually a great answer. And then I have the same question for the the lay people. Now, they might not be quite as quick to do a a need analysis or something (laughs) for their I mean, but maybe they're gonna maybe they're really (laughs) good with census data. But you know, what what do you in terms of maybe even just adjusting one's expectations? uh, And maybe maybe you can speak as a sociologist to just sort of the facts on the ground of how these things go yeah. when mobile yeah. people encounter a right. mobile infrastructure. Right.
1: Well, change is hard, you know, change is hard for anybody, especially if you're talking about if you've been a member of a, of a congregation or something for a super long time, and then all of a sudden someone comes in and they speak another language. And, you know, mm-hmm. for some, this is a real feeling of Oh, gosh, you know, that's not supposed to happen here or what's what's going on. And I've seen this play out differently in different communities, because sometimes people feel very uncomfortable in their own parish. They feel or they use words like, oh, it's being taken over by, you know, Hispanics or something like that. But there is a way in which to say, hey, this is the vitality and the, the vibrancy and the future of this congregation or this faith tradition. And I think for someone who's truly committed to. Their church, um, it means thinking about what the church looks like, not just in the past and in the present, but in the future. And where do you draw lines? Where do you draw your social boundaries? And if you're starting to exclude, whether explicitly, which would be really bad, but even implicitly through the ways that you're interacting with others or starting arguments in the parish parking lot, or, you know, these subtle ways that, that we are not kind and welcoming to others who are different than us. That's back to the question of why people leave, you know, that can make people leave. And so, you know, perhaps it is a, just a recognition of one's own, you know, you want a place that feels like home, but but also recognizing home is going to continue to change because you have new family members who are coming in.
0: I got a kind of a unique view into this recently with a family friend who is an elder at a church. And she was chatting with me because she was going to present a book to the elder board that argued for gay inclusion. Okay, And they were going to discuss it. And, you know, there's a variety of views of people on that board. and And then another interesting variable was the book that she chose to use. I told her, I said... I don't think that's the best argument. Mm. Am I aware of that guy's argument? Mm-hmm. I think these arguments are better, but she was already midstream. Yeah. And, you know, I think it kind of ended in a bit of a draw. I'm not totally sure. Yeah. Um, but, like, there's all these factors that go in, and I'm wondering, that might be an angle in for the layperson to be like, well, what if I'm the one who recommended the better book? Yeah. You know, it, or yeah, if, if, I'm, if I have my ear to the ground, if I know some people who are in leadership here, like... Right. Can I be a resource to you? Could yeah. I do some of this research for you? Right. Uh, maybe not with the yeah, census data, yeah, depending yeah, on your, your level. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We, we
1: all have a skill set. And and yeah, thinking through what, what is it that I can bring to this? Or maybe I'm able to speak to a particular experience that these folks have never had. Or I can bring, yeah, a friend to talk about his or her experience in order to have the congregation better understand something. I think there are lots of ways that we can all bring something to the table for sure.
0: So I I teased earlier that we are going to talk about the, the nuns, the no yeah, religious yeah. group and then the interaction of that with this conversation. But let's just let's start with um the fact that more and more people are identifying as non religious, especially young people. Yeah. My first question is can you give us a little data about this? Like how fast is it changing? Yeah. Which branches of Christianity are being hit hardest, et cetera?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of the, the sheer presence, I mean, it really is kind of phenomenal. Um, sociologists look at patterns. We look at trend lines and the trend line around people who are not affiliating with religion has really gone up. So even from 2007 to 2014, even 2014 to some of the data that just came out from General Social Survey um, this, this year, we keep seeing that ticking up. Up. And so now wow. folks who are non-religious or who don't affiliate with any particular religious denomination are roughly on par with Catholics, roughly on par with evangelicals. So about a quarter of the population. And as you l- alluded to, it's even higher among those who are younger. So Gen X, but then especially uh, millennials and Gen Gen Y or whatever or name Z we use. For- yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. no. um, it's even higher. Um, so this this is real. Now, it's also somewhat misleading for a couple reasons, you know, uh, for one, sometimes people affiliate um, or associate the nuns with atheists or agnostics. And, and this is certainly a part of it. But for most people, they don't identify as atheists or even agnostic. They just identify as nothing in particular. And for many nuns, they s- still practice religion in different ways. Like some, a lot of nuns still believe in God. Some nuns attend religious services.
0: <laughs> Another phrase yeah. that gets thrown around is spiritual but not religious. Yeah, uh, Is that the same thing? Or are those, unfortunately, <laughs> a non-overlapping Criteria or what? It could be,
1: you know, sociologists have kind of bantered with this term, those two terms, for some time just because it creates this, I think, artificially false binary that's kind of one or the other. And for some people, yeah, that really fits. Like maybe this is a rejection of formal organized religion. Yeah, I love
0: Jesus, but I hate organized religion or something like that. I believe in God, but I would never go to church. Absolutely. That's definitely
1: part of it. Um, But, you know, you talk to a lot of people who are very religious and very spiritual, you know, so it doesn't necessarily fall as neatly. But I think, too, back on this theme of of cultural change, I think we have a and we've experienced a shift culturally whereby earlier in earlier generations and even among older Americans now everybody was something that was just the expectation like even if you weren't practicing you were Methodists or you were that's just you know it was a, it's a, it's a form of legitimacy I mean even if you look at immigrants you know uh, particularly with with the Christian affiliation this was one way of saying hey I'm an American and I'm gonna prove that I'm an American because I'm going to this church down I'm the road
0: Dutch reformed yeah, yeah. exactly or oh, you just to be an American is to go to church.
1: Yes, exactly. Huh. And and that's, I think, started to change a little bit. You know, the stigma has gone down for those who don't yeah. go to church, you know. So even if the practice hasn't changed, it, the labels and the ways we talk about it have changed.
0: Yeah, maybe you're referring to kind of that civil religion, yeah, which people talk, uh, sociologists talk about a lot, which really reigned for like 150 years oh, in yeah. America once there were enough people to have it. Yeah. until, what, the 90s or 80s or 90s, it starts to go down yeah. and it no longer become, maybe, maybe the countercultural movement of, of the 60s and 70s is sort of the beginning of that. But yeah, it, in, I always mention this stat, but usually for different reasons, 1933 Germany was 99% Christian. Mm, but yeah. like, in what meaningful sense could it possibly sure. have been 99% Christian? The yeah. only meaningful sense is culturally.
1: Yeah, yeah. You
0: just, you know, obviously it's not really affecting... a lot of their decision-making and and whatnot at that point.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've been on the overlap with the the political piece, which, you know, civil religion does kind of highlight this close linking. And certainly we still see some of that right, our our president goes to the prayer breakfast, and
0: yeah there's um, vestigial, <laughs> yeah. yeah, whatever left of it, yeah,
1: but you know Americans they poll Americans about who would you be more likely to vote for as a president if they shared all things equally, and they 'll ask things like, would you be willing to vote for a Muslim, an atheist, an x y z and and people in you know more recently have more openness to a variety of religious persuasions. Now, I, I don't want to overplay that because... People still, especially among political leaders, they you know a lot of people really want to see a faith statement or a faith commitment, and and we still live in a a very religious country in terms of people's both affiliation but also belief in God, especially as compared to other industrialized, wealthy, right. wealthy countries. <laughs> right. But but this is still real, very real.
0: Why do you think this category of no religion is on the rise? I'm sure this is the million dollar question in yeah. sociology of religion. But what's your take on it?
1: Yeah. Why is it going up? You know, um, it's, it is a hard question to answer. I mean, there are some, you know, on on the Catholic side, uh, you know, there are 22 million ex-Catholics.
0: That's a lot.
1: Yeah. I,
0: I think that, I mean, with my little back of the envelope math, though, yeah. it, 20 to 50 year olds, I think there are, is a, I think there are at least three or four million ex-evangelicals.
1: Yeah. You yeah. know,
0: just in that age cohort. I'm, I mean, sure. it might be fewer, I don't know, but. Yeah ten tenish percent of yeah. you know of the population. Well
1: and mainline Protestants too. There have been some really big drops. Right. Now some people then become another faith tradition. So right, it's not exactly. like they yeah. leave. And uh, some people
0: replace those evangelicals exactly. who leave. It's not yeah. like that doesn't mean that they've lost four million. Yeah. I'm just saying there is this huge population and and they're yeah. kind of the, the I not know the center of, of who I end up speaking yeah. with and, and listen yeah. to the podcast and stuff. Yeah.
1: But the you know like if you look at the and I'm I'm gonna I'm playing playing around with your question, I think, in part because it's a hard question. Well, that's um, fine. <laughs> but the if you look at the Catholic line over time, so the stability of the of Catholics as a proportion of the US population um has been actually quite striking. So it's been roughly a quarter for really decades and decades and decades. But what's behind that is some pretty massive transition and part of why it's maintained stability is that offsetting all of these ex-Catholics immigrants is immigrants um so immigration but also fertility mm,
0: um right. and you
1: have a, a higher proportion <laughs> the old the yeah. old
0: uh, ace in the catholic yeah. sleeve
1: yes more but, babies but and especially among hispanic catholics so you right. have now a higher proportion of hispanic catholics in the u.s catholic church and hispanics on average have higher fertility rates than non-hispanics in this country so in terms of numbers that's that's helping right if you're if, if you're kind of counting people right. in the pews but you know even now it's it's like, It's kind of hovering. So they need to start to ask like, okay, well, something, you know, something's happening here. Um, And then the other thing that that I think about, too, is the fact that we have now all of these young millennials and younger who don't have a religious affiliation, who many of whom were raised with one. So they were raised to something and and now they're not. So whether they're whether they're an ex-Catholic or whether they sort of talk about mainline Protestantism as a uh, sometimes it's like a vaccine, you know, you get just enough to to never have the whole thing yeah. um and and so they're not so the, the question that ra- that raises in my mind is they're now having kids or they will have kids and those children unless they're you know going quote unquote back to the church they're they're not being raised with anything in particular so to me as a sociologist and just as a person curious about all this I'll be fascinated to see how this plays out because what the phenomenon of nuns we have now are most of it's really formally religious nuns. And I think the nuns of the future are never religious nuns.
0: Yeah, right, exactly.
1: Which is going to look different.
0: Yeah, I find the evangelical version of this question the most interesting, because that's where I came from. Mm-hmm. And one number that is popping back into my head that Robert P. Jones found with Public yeah, Religion PRR. Research Institution mm-hmm. Institute is that among evangelical Protestants, the oldest cohort has lost a two thirds market share compared to the youngest cohort. Wow! So, yeah. of American citizens, three times as many sixty five and older are evangelical Protestant as twenty and younger, or whatever the numbers are. That is incredible, and especially yeah. that's incredible because evangelical religion does a pretty good job of like instilling itself into children, and it's sure. not like yeah. it's not like they're not getting it. Yeah. You know, it it is a little different in that sense from the way Catholicism sometimes is, goes about because it does have those ethnic ties and these yeah. sort of other non, right. it's like pretty doctrinal, yeah. you know, in evangelicalism. Yeah. And there's a cultural right. element. And I would argue with the rise of Trump, we we see there's actually even more of a cultural element than we might've thought there was. Mm-hmm. And it's less, strictly speaking, about the beliefs. And mm-hmm. that's another question. Yeah, I don't know if you wanted to comment on yeah. that, that I evangelical mean, well, thing.
1: The only thing, I, I I won't necessarily comment on that piece, but on the um, the cultural piece, which is just to say that the loss of, if we want to call it loss, we can use different terms, but but the loss of religion carries with it the potential loss of other things like ethnic traditions, like language, you know, there I did a, a national study um, on Asian American Catholics and For many first gen Asian American Catholics, Asian and Pacific Islander American Catholics, um, so they were not born in this country, uh, born somewhere else, migrated here, are now raising their children here. And there is this real fear, even panic, that their children are leaving the church, in this case, the Catholic Church, because Catholicism is where they're getting their language lessons, where they're getting their connection to the home country of their parents, all of these traditions or the saints that are venerated or the food or otherwise. And so there's the fear that if the kids, if the second generation and beyond no longer go to mass, where can they be? Vietnamese, You know, where can they be around totally. others who are and back to the question of what what happens when you leave or what do you give up when you leave um, for ethnic communities of, of Catholics and in particular for Catholics of color? This really matters because what other spaces do you have where you can be around others who know that, right, who experience that, who know that the language of the connections or, or the cultural traditions or otherwise? And that's a real fear that goes beyond just the religious piece of it.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. To to tie this back to our earlier conversation, how does this rapid change, this rapid rise of of no religious affiliation intersect with the conversation about leaving versus staying in your institution? I mean, is our voice further multiplied if we are young? by virtue of simply being a young person who stays? Like, if if (laughs) two-thirds, let's just say, statistically, are leaving, and you're in the one-third that stays, (laughs) aren't you now three times more powerful?
1: (laughs) I I I like this math. I
0: mean, back of the envelope math, but something like that. Yeah. You can imagine a 60-year-old head pastor going, (laughs) We really need some 25-year-old opinions here. Right. And if you're the one, you're worth three of them.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You know, young people who are in church who um, <laughs> attend mass uh, depending on which one you go to and sometimes they'll congregate in places like college campus parishes or things like this but but if you're in sort of a traditional territorial parish uh, then yeah you might get a lot of attention. <laughs> I know even when I um, did my research on Voice of the Faithful given that many people in that movement were older and at the time I was in my early 20s in graduate school then yeah people would flock to me how do we get the young people here so and, and that's a lot of pressure you know people don't necessarily want to be the voice of a generation. Um, right but, but- <laughs> I mean if
0: you if you do have some desire yeah. for like especially if you're thinking of leaving because there's something that you would like to change. Yeah. Or maybe you l- let's say you have to leave your non denominational church, it's not gonna work anymore. And you're like, should I try one of these mainline churches with a lot of gray hair? It's like Yeah. Well, if you have some ideas sure. that didn't work for you that like they're gonna probably wanna hear them. Like yeah. you might be surprised at like yeah. how effective you might feel. Yeah. how much efficacy you might have.
1: Yes. I, you know, having done just scores of interviews and focus groups with, with people in various congregational settings who are thinking about the future, there is this real eagerness to include younger generations. Uh, And so I think, yeah, that's, that's potentially a position of power that you come in. And if you can say, Hey, okay, I recognize that I'm one of a handful or maybe the only young person here, but yeah, I am the future. Right. so here are some ideas here's what this looks like and you know what the the there's a lot to be learned from others who are older too. Of course yeah it's two way street <laughs> yeah. but
0: my wife and I are now looking for a church and we just you know we've gone to a couple of these like mainline churches and it's like if we had four other couples Sure yeah and we brought in 10 30 somethings yeah. couple you know some of them late 20s few children mm-hmm. I mean yeah. we could we are a new Change caucus it. within this church immediately That's right. Uh and so I that that is interesting and and I think it's like some sometimes this podcast feels like a uh a big advertisement for liberal mainline protestantism. <laughs> and so I guess I just want to highlight that yep. of like yeah. you know if you do need to leave your actual church but you're kind of maybe we should do a home church or maybe we should just get together with friends like maybe see if three couples or something or a group yeah. of 5 to 10 of you might Try a place where there's not a lot of young people, but really cool, like, you know, maybe liturgy liturgy that you like or Mm -hmm. some physical beauty of the space or something like that.
1: I think that's a really good point because it's much less intimidating to to not be the only one. The only
0: one, exactly. And that's what becomes awkward. A lot of those mainline churches... The youth level declined so much that now it's like a huge hurdle. Yeah. And if you just had five buddies, it would be right. so much easier. Yeah. So this is my last sort of question slash topic for you, but we can talk about it for a minute. One more area of your work that I think intersects, I think, especially well with this conversation about these mainline churches that do have these buildings. Sure. You're working on a manuscript yeah. of a book. Yeah. Talking about church conversions, yeah. basically right. spaces that are that are transitioning from religious purposes into non religious purposes. Is is that either yeah. full time or during the week or is, is that I mean what counts? That
1: is a great question already because it depends on the denomination, right? Right. Catholics would never share <laughs> the space.
0: It's, it's either a, it's all a holy or space. nothing. Yeah.
1: Whereas mainline Protestants yeah, are much and, and more likely to church share Christ it. And stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So it strikes me that this is related, right? Yeah. Because the, a lot of these churches have these immobile infrastructure right. bits that are real valuable.
1: Absolutely. And
0: when they are being made available, mm-hmm. they are being made, av- made available by Christians mm-hmm. from within the institutions mm-hmm. that are then having services for people outside sure. the church. But if you're not part of that church, you're not going to get the keys to the building. Yeah. You know, so it it also it's another sort of motivator. Right. Like if you leave the building, you don't get the building.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. So a lot of congregations, if they still retain the property, then they'll try to think of creative things that that are aligned with the uh, religious sentiment that they hold. So they may think, okay, well, um, using it for, for the arts, that's an appropriate AA use. meetings. Yeah. Right, AA yeah. meetings. Um, or, uh, there's some homeless churches, ministries yeah, yeah, Homeless stuff, ministries. Yeah. some of them have been, uh, converted into terminal care facilities, oh, wow. this type yeah. of thing. Um, and the, uh, in
0: some tent cities, yeah. uh, with using the kitchen and bathroom facilities, absolutely. Uh, in, and, or, or, uh, so even beyond homeless shelter to like in like in Seattle where we have a burgeoning homelessness problem you know yeah. many many churches in this and then they get shut down by the neighbors and another church right. does that's its own thing
1: it, no it's true there are a lot of politics involved too um or even affordable housing I mean this is right.
0: you
1: know and it really varies by location too like to, to draw the counter example um this is happening in places like rural Iowa and in Iowa I mean there's not some of these communities it's like well they've already they've shut the post office down they shut the grocery store down and the church may be the last thing to go you know mm. they're they're closing down the church and what do you do with that and and sometimes it's it's literally nothing you know sometimes this is just it becomes a ghost town of what used to be you know a, a religious community or used to be a vibrant rural town um, so part of this you know shows the sort of um, transition of of rural America and the the mobility of people now into a higher concentration in, in urban areas for economic and other reasons, but then for for urban communities and for depending on the the property value, um, then it's this negotiation of well, what what does this look like? And in some ways, there are some really creative um, and I think big imagination, and I would even say religious ways to reuse this property, um, and then on the. Potentially the other side, there's it just becomes a real estate transaction. Sometimes these places, of course, are torn down. And sometimes this is because people would rather not see anything but worship in this space Hmm. we don't want to see anything else it can only be a church and so you you have to tear it down which is yeah which is really painful um so to me you know i'm i'm doing this as a sociologist but but i think you know from a broad like you step back um the satellite view this is a a real, I think, test in a way of how does the U.S. negotiate this I'm not going to call it secularization, but I'm going to call it the the diffusion of religion into cities in different ways. And part of that happens through transitions in property. So does that property, the symbolic role of religion in the city, simply disappear and fade into history and retained only by those who once attended? Or does it get um, adapted? You know, architects call it adaptive reuse. So do we make it into condos or nonprofits or other spaces Um, or, or something else? entirely and I think those outcomes say a lot about how we're dealing with this transition of the religious landscape as a whole
0: can I get you to take off your or at least cock your sociologist hat to the side (laughs) or wear it backwards (laughs) partially wear it and just someone's listening they are considering either a a change or a a leaving altogether Mm, Yeah, just your final pitch to just to reconsider that what, what do you say
1: Religion certainly in the in the U.S. and for all of us, it is changing. And so even if we stay right where we are, it's still going to change. Change is happening. Um, Sure, good point. And so I think there are ways to to respond creatively to that. You know, it it does require this sort of introspection. um, But I and I think it also requires voice. Of course, I'm I'm an academic, I'm an educator, and there's a real power in knowledge and education, um, both in learning things, but also in learning to articulate areas that need to change I think from a religious perspective there doesn't have to be this huge chasm between knowledge and religion you know you can put on both of those hats you know Um, and then and then see where it leads and sometimes that's uncomfortable but you'll definitely have company
0: (laughs) thank you so much for your time thank you Pretty good, right? Smart woman. Very interesting conversation. I wonder if you guys are feeling more motivated to stay or go. I don't know. Um, But we are now at the point where I answer that patron question from Jamie. In your opinion, what are the requirements for someone to call themselves a Christian? I need to mention, because the Patreon has grown so much in the past five months since You Have Permission launched... It was going before that, and I actually did a whole patron-only episode on this very question with my good friend Ben Bishop. It was actually the very first of these twice-monthly bonus episodes that I'm now doing regularly. It's from August 2018, and I will put a link to that in the show notes. But, of course, if you're a patron, you can go back through Patreon or your RSS feed in your podcast app and find that episode. I think we, we called it Orthodoxy or something like that. So if you really want to go deep on this question, or if you want to hear a really smart person push back on my own personal intuitions, if my own answer is not very satisfying, I would definitely recommend listening to that episode. Now to the question. The first thing that I want to do with this question is consider why we are asking it. And this will be different for different people. Right now, somewhere in China, there is a Buddhist 17-year-old in her world religions class learning about Christianity in a textbook for the first time. And she's considering the question, what makes someone a Christian? She likely has no serious interest in it, just as most of us have no serious interest in becoming Muslim, but we might be curious now and again, what makes someone a Muslim? We might call this one the taxonomical motivation, like the taxonomy of animals or the sociological motivation. Let's get a good definition so that we can do research. But I doubt that this detached and scientific angle would be the primary motivation for most listeners of this show or even myself. Most of us have more skin in the game than that. Christianity is, in some sense, our tribe. It's a part of our identity. Among other possible motivations for the question, consider the opposite case. An anxious Christian who believes most of the world is destined for eternal hell and that the only surefire way of avoiding this fate is to be a Christian, a member in good standing, as it were, of the Christian tribe. In that case, it really matters what counts as a Christian because that's your ticket to heaven or your get out of hell card. A third motivation might be something like my own motivation. I am really tired of certain Christians saying that other Christians aren't Christians. We have a long history of excommunication and mutual excommunication in our religion, and it is never a good look. And I ask myself, by what criteria are they making this claim? Who gets to decide who is and isn't a Christian? Now, it's helpful to distinguish between two categories that we can sometimes get mixed up. Category one is all Christians, whatever that means. Category two is all the people who are right with God, whatever we mean by right with God. These are definitively not the same category. The Bible itself is full of people who are clearly right with God, who are not Christians. Most of them are Jews, but not all of them are. And most Christian theologians over the centuries have claimed that Jews are still in some meaningful sense, God's chosen people, that the new covenant of Jesus does not abolish and supersede the old covenant, between Yahweh and Israel. So at a bare minimum, the second category, all the people who are right with God, includes faithful Jews. But of course, some people, like myself, think it includes far more than simply Christians and faithful Jews. It might even include everybody in the end. But I do wonder if most of the time that we ask this question, what does it take to count as a Christian, we really mean to ask, what does it take to be right with God? But those are two very different questions, and we should keep that in mind. Here is one other motivation, a fourth motivation for asking this question, the desire to be in regular, faithful Christian community with other people. In this case, it does seem quite helpful to know what the basic boundaries will be of the group, what its communal practice will be directed toward, etc. Now, I know this is a lot of preamble, but one more distinction I think will also be helpful. In season three of Depolarize, I had a great conversation with theologian Alan Yeh, and he brought up this very helpful image of bounded sets versus centered sets. These are terms originally from mathematics, but they apply well in this case. A bounded set is a group of numbers or data points or people that are within a certain boundary, hence the name bounded set. A centered set is a group of numbers or data points or people that congregate around a certain middle point. You see the distinction? A bounded set says, here is the line outside of this line. You are not in this group. A centered set says, here is the center in Christianity's case, Jesus. If you are congregating around this center, or if you are oriented toward this center pointed towards Jesus, then you are in the group. The centered set perspective is not concerned with defining the outer boundary. It's only interested in defining the center. Now, of course, there will still be disagreement about what exactly is the center, and that is what theology is for. But the way that I answer this question, what does it take to be considered a Christian, can be thought of as both a bounded set and a centered set response, depending on how you look at it. And here's my answer. Jesus is Lord. To my mind, that's it. I think that Jesus is Lord is both the outer boundary and the center point. If you don't think that Jesus is in some way Lord, then I think you are outside Christianity. That is the outer boundary. And whatever it is that Christianity teaches that other religions and philosophies do not teach seems to be centered on the idea that Jesus is in some sense Lord. An alternative candidate, I've heard before, is the resurrection of Jesus. This is another answer people give for what it takes to be a Christian. You should affirm the resurrection. I understand the motivation for this answer, especially when we read that Paul says, if Christ was not raised, then we are to be pitied above all men. That has a lot of rhetorical power to it. But defining what we mean by the resurrection can get kind of slippery. A revivified corpse? Then what about the times people couldn't recognize Jesus or Jesus walks through doors. A body made of pure pneuma or energy, as Dale Martin seems to think. Well, that might be how Paul describes it, but that doesn't necessarily match the gospel accounts where Jesus is eating and drinking. N.T. Wright's suggestion that it is basically the kind of body that humans will have in the next life. Intriguing, but it's certainly not the only way of thinking about it. So if you want to make it the resurrection, given all this ambiguity, Doesn't Jesus as Lord work pretty well to cover all those options and more? I like the simplicity of it and the inclusiveness of it. Now, another option that people have said is the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. I really like these as alternative ways of defining the center of the group, but I don't love it as the boundary because there are some non-creedal Christian denominations that obviously still believe in Jesus. And also the creeds are not in the Bible, which can be a problem for some Christians, and it makes the whole thing a bit messier. So for me, it is simply the confession that Jesus is in some way Lord. In my book, that's enough. And I hope that that hasn't disappointed anybody by being too simple. Thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing my conversation with Trisha. Um Josh is available for podcast editing. His email is in the show notes uh, for anybody out there who is looking for another editor for their podcast. I have a link to Trisha's website on the show notes, and I also have a link to that patron episode with Ben talking about orthodoxy. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can become a patron and get the bonus episodes like the one with Ben. Uh, you can join the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. You can submit questions like the one I just answered or vote on which questions I will answer and also help me write questions for the guests as I've been doing more recently getting excellent questions from the Facebook group. Um, Patreon.com slash Dan Koch or permissionpod.com. Click become a patron. It's five bucks a month. You can pay more if you'd like. And also if you can't afford it, if you really are in a spot where you can't swing that right now, there are some, there are, uh, scholarships available. There are some people who've offered to pay extra to cover you. Email me, youhavepermissionpodcasts at gmail.com. In fact, email me with anything you want. I'm curious what you think of the show, how it's been involved in conversations you've had with loved ones. podcast at gmail.com. Please share these episodes. Please tell people about it if it's helpful to you. And uh, I'm just grateful for you guys' support. Thank you so much. Acast Plus makes it easy to turn loyal listeners into paying fans. Whether you're just getting started or a seasoned podcaster, subscriptions and one-time payments can make a real difference in your income and listener engagement. With customizable subscription plans, you can include ad-free streams, early access, and bonus content. And with one-time payments, you can offer limited series or one-off episodes all available across multiple podcast apps. You decide the best options for your listeners. To find out more, visit Acast.com backslash Acast Plus.